All right. Uh, hello, everyone. Thanks for uh, coming. Um, I'm going to be talking to you about how uh, Citus data um, scales out Postgres and uh, how it does it on uh, AWS. Um, I got the forward button. So uh, my name is Will Lineweber. You can get in touch with me, uh, Lineweber, on Twitter. Our website is Citus Data. Um, and so just to go over the overview of what's going to happen in this talk, uh, there's two major parts of the talk. First is uh, what Citus is, how it works, how it works as an extension on Postgres. And then the second part is how we've built a cloud service for it. Um, and, you know, th those sorts of things. Um, and so the first part, uh, Citus is an extension on top of Postgres. And we're going to get into our talk about how uh, that enables you to scale out Postgres, both in terms of disk storage, but also the memory usage, so you can control how much is uh, cached in RAM, and also if you need to scale out your compute. And so using Citus, you can scale out all those different components of your database. Um, and then the second half is the orchestration part of how we built a cloud service on Amazon. And uh, even if you're you know, not going to be using our cloud service, uh, hopefully there's some uh, tips and tricks that we've learned over the years to, uh, that you can use your, in your own developments of Postgres or other sorts of cloud services. Um, and we're going to go over things that worked uh, surprisingly well, uh, disaster recovery, a little bit on microservice monitoring, and, and those sorts of things. Uh, just curious here, who uses Postgres uh, today? Okay, that's, that's nice. Good. You all have good choices and taste. Um, uh, secondly, just, uh, just uh, curious, has anyone uh, tried Citus before? Okay, a couple people, that's nice. All right. Um, yeah, this is me. Okay, so uh, to understand, to get to the second part, to understand the design of the service, you first have to know a little bit about how Citus works. Um, so the, the first most important thing is earlier this year, uh, we open sourced Citus uh, and made it just an extension on top of Postgres. Rather than it being a fork of Postgres where it would be a you know, modification uh, and that would make it harder to stay up to date with advances as Postgres advances, uh, currently it's just an extension on top. And that way uh, it's, it's still a little bit of work on our end, but uh, it's pretty easy to, for us to, when a new version of Postgres comes out, like when 9.6 came out and uh, next when Postgres 10 comes out, uh, to uh, port our, our thing forward so the extension continues to work. And the upside is uh, people who use Citus can get a, get, take advantage of new Postgres features uh, almost on day one. Uh, and, you know, for those of you, and many of you were using Postgres, you know that uh, every year Postgres, you know, maybe there's not uh, a huge release every year, but uh, there's always something nice that you want to be taking advantage of. And uh, because we're an extension, it's very easy for us to continue to support those things. Um, so what Citus does is it makes, turns Postgres into a distributed database. Uh, many apps, you know, eventually outgrow single-node Postgres. Uh, either, you know, maybe, you know, data starts becoming, you know, coming in at an increasing rate, or, you know, very frequently people don't, no longer start deleting their data. Uh, I gave a talk once on uh, some strategies to, to mitigate uh, your Postgres growth, you know, to keep, try to stay inside single-node Postgres. Uh, by, you know, actually deleting your old data. And I, I really wanted people to do that, but it turns out organizations, they just, 
you know, have an addiction to storing as much data as they possibly can and just end up never deleting anything. And now, uh, now they're metastasis, that's fine. You should keep all your data forever and uh, use a nice uh, distributed Postgres. But even, even outside of that, there is, um, you know, plenty of reasons for, you know, legitimate reasons why you have a lot of data and you need, and it's just, you know, too much for single node Postgres. Uh, usually people start hitting limits on uh, the amount of RAM that you can have in one machine. I know, uh, you know, you know, announced uh, recently over the last couple of months and today, you know, more and more bigger Amazon machines with more and more RAM, but still, you know, there's, there's a limit to how, how big that can get. Um, and then also uh, Postgres itself, uh, the 9.6, uh, I believe, has some, some advantages with uh, parallel query, uh, doing sequential scans in parallel, uh, but really uh, like aggregates and stuff in parallel, like uh, being able to scale out your CPU, I've seen um, some, you know, going on some customers calls, I've seen uh, using equivalent amount of spend on single node Postgres to a, a small cluster of Citus uh, up to like 100, 150x improvements because they were CPU bound. And Postgres by default just has one backend and you're limited mostly more, more or less uh, with some caveats to one processor working on the data. Uh, and so Citus takes care of sharding the data to many nodes. It takes care of routing queries to the appropriate node, parallelizing the queries to do, do all the work in parallel. And um, the exciting thing is the worker nodes are nothing special. They're just Postgres instances. Uh, and what I mean by that, uh, in the terminology that we use, tend to use a lot, uh, we have, you know, worker zero, worker one, so on and so forth. And on these workers, there's shards of data. And so we can have, uh, you know, your one table could be split into maybe, let's say, 64, 128 shards. Uh, you know, some of those will be on the first worker, some of them will be on the next worker, and so on. And what's really going on is these are just servers and tables. Uh, so each one of these is a normal Postgres server that you're, if you're operating it yourself, it operates in much the same way, uh, similar backup, disaster recovery sorts of things. And the actual shards just show up as tables. And to uh, just to drive that home a little bit, uh, on the coordinator node here uh, that takes care of uh, running some queries, I'm listing, you know, using backslash DNP SQL to list what tables I have. And this is actually a production database that I use myself. Uh, and we'll get into some of what these tables are later. Uh, I just have two little tables here. But when you go to one of the worker nodes and run it, you can see here now uh, there's the same tables but with their shard number placed on them. And uh, if you do connect to this, you can actually just look at it and it's just the normal table but split up into these little pieces. So when a write comes in, like an insert, update, delete, uh, we look at how it's sharded. So you, when you make a table, you say, I want uh, this table to be sharded by uh, this column. And so when the query comes in to do a write, we know where that's going to end up. We hash that value. We know which shard and, by, and therefore which server to go to. And we go and do that write operation. Uh, and the way we do the, the hashing, uh, there's a, a little, uh, uh, what you call it, the catalog table. And you can see here that uh, the first shard takes, you know, negative, uh, you know, two billion, whatever, uh, to the next, next version, so on and so forth. And those are where the, that's how we know where the shard ends up. Um, and that's how, that's how writes go no matter what. Now, there's two models, two sorts of ways that we see people using Citus most frequently. Uh, one is like a real-time SQL on event data. 
and the other is sort of a multi-tenant model. And I'm going to get into both of these. And so uh, the first one, the multi-tenant model, this is if it's the system of record for uh, your, your like, multi-tenant SaaS app. Let's say you have an application that you have uh, individual customers. They each get their own silo of data, but it's the same set of tables for each of your customers. Uh, and, you know, for example, uh, you know, Salesforce, um, you know, other sorts of um, reporting, you know, sort of apps where uh, if you were going to shard this yourself in the application layer, what you would do is have a, you know, a number of Postgres, Postgres's, uh, maybe, uh, maybe using, uh, I've seen this a lot, unfortunately, using the Postgres's schemas to do the sharding, which that, um, if anyone's doing that right now, uh, be aware that, like, PG dump starts to fail over after you get a certain number of tenants, uh, and that can be, um, uh, I saw one where just planning queries took minutes because of all the just schema objects, and it was a, a nightmare. Um, so anyway, but that's, I see, you know, that's an approach that, so every single customer has their own sets of tables. Uh, and uh, if you use that on Citus, uh, instead of having to put that logic in your application, you can have the database take care of doing the logic of sharding out each one of these tenants for you. Um, and the nice thing about this sort of multi-tenant approach is it's uh, easy to do migrations, uh, it's easy to migrate from, both do migrations of your source, you know, when you're adding columns and such, because you only have to do it in one spot. You don't have to track down each of your, your columns, each of your tables across all your databases. You can do the DDL in one spot. You know, that works very nicely. Um, it's also simple to go, if you're already doing this on a single Postgres now, you can migrate into multi-node Citus, uh, fairly straightforward. Uh, you don't really have to rewrite much of your application. Uh, you know, you get, uh, I think pretty much all Postgres just works in this model. Uh, it's easy to maintain. Um, you know, H high availability works the same way as you would use uh, in your Postgres. Uh, backups, you can use PG dumps, you can use wall, wall shipping, that all works fine. And it's easy to scale both uh, vertically by making the worker nodes individually larger instances, or you can add new nodes to the cluster as, you're, as you need more uh, as your demands increase. Um, and just uh, to get into uh, how this works, uh, it's important that all of the tables have the same shard key. And so for, if, if you had, uh, you know, customer ID or tenant ID or organization ID, those are the common ones I see, uh, each table, you normalize that out, so each table has that reference. And then as long as the queries all come, go in, reference that same column when you're doing the sharding, Everything works just nice. And just to you know, illustrate this a little bit more, let's say it's, we're using org ID as our key. The query comes in and it says, uh, you know, whatever, 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 and then where org ID equals three, uh, we know how to shard that. We know how to, you know, what shard it goes to, what server it goes to. The query gets routed there. It executes, and uh, you get your data there. Um, and this is, you know, Pretty much, you know, nothing's magical is going on here. This is like exactly as you would do it yourself were you to uh, push, the app, push the sharding logic into your own application. Um, the other model is pretty exciting. The, the sort of parallel, uh, kind of NoSQL-ish model. And this, uh, you can do normal SQL pretty much on, uh, you know, trillions of events for like real-time analytics. Uh, 
sort of the advantages here is that uh, you, get, you still get to use Postgres. You get to use your Postgres drivers. Uh, it's you know more familiar than having to go to a complete uh, complete rewrite system like Cassandra or something else. Uh, you get to keep more of your experience in house. Uh, lower cost, you can you know use your existing team skills uh, also for orchestrating and managing. Like you know, it still feels the same as Postgres. And uh, you get to take advantage of extensible features. For example, when uh, JSONB landed a release or two ago, uh, that makes it a you know great, you know great store for being able to have indexes on sort of you know semi-relational data and sort of you know mix the two, having you know real columns and sort of like an amorphous um, you know extra data and be able to do you know computation on both. Uh, and the other thing that's nice, uh, just going back to the cost thing, because it is Postgres, uh, you can spill to disk. You can have, you, do, for, you know, some, some solutions in this thing are in memory only, uh, and that can get very expensive as you have to keep adding new machines to just, because RAM is very, very expensive. Uh, because this is Postgres, it operates the same way. You can have, you know, just a portion of your data set in uh, RAM and the rest spilling to disk. And the way this works is when the query comes in, you know, now we're sharding on something different. Maybe we're sharding just on a UUID to distribute the data randomly. Maybe we're sharding on, uh, you know, timestamp or, you know, so depending on, this is, uh, you know, depending on your application, choosing the right shard key in this is important uh, and uh, it's, you know, sort of application specific. But when the query comes in, because you're not saying that same shard key, what happens is the query gets paralyzed and it hits every single one of your servers. And in this way, the uh, the computation happens in parallel across uh, not only all the servers in your cluster but all the CPU cores in your in your cluster, and so you can put your entire your entire uh, cluster to work doing aggregations that can be pushed down, and then then uh, the data that um, uh, as it, as it, you know the stuff that can't be pushed down gets brought back up to one of the nodes, and uh, you know further aggregations done there, and then it returns back. Uh, one of the things, though, because this is splitting off the work and doing, uh, you know, stuff in parallel, now you start getting into a couple trade-offs. Uh, some complicated CTs can't work, um, but, uh, you know, it's a lot of SQL, but it's not, you know, all SQL. Whereas before, in the other model, because it was going to a single node, we're able to do, you know, full SQL coverage. This, because we're splitting, you know, things apart, uh, you know, certain aggregations that rely on accessing all the data at one time, those are uh, harder to do, and um, we're, we're increasing our SQL coverage over time, but right now this is where you might run into a couple stumbling blocks. And if any of you do are using Citus and you run into something when you're doing this, uh, we have a very uh, active um, Slack channel and people where we can, you know, help you walk you through this. Because this is maybe, of all the places where there might be a stumbling block, this is maybe, maybe one of them. But it's not so bad. Um, and because of this, uh, I mentioned before, uh, this is one of the customers where we saw like 100, 200x improvement because their workload was CPU bound. Being able to push it out and hit all of the nodes, uh, that's how you get uh, you know, some pretty incredible performance increases. And one of the, the more recent things that we announced uh, back in September is Citus MX, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about this. Uh, all the previous ones, uh, when you would issue a query, it would go to one coordinator node, and that would do the work of aggregating the data. Uh, Citus MX now, you can, uh, when you connect to it, 
you get assigned to any one of the nodes in your cluster, and uh, it sort of is, uh, you know, sort of a, a no master kind of approach. And with this approach, the rights uh, just the right scaling goes really huge. Uh, and we have an example here that I'm going to show. Um, I, I was a little bit uh, too nervous to do the example live, so I had one of my colleagues uh, recorded a, uh, a demo. I didn't want to tempt the uh, the Wi-Fi uh, demo gods here. Uh, but just an overview of how it works. Um, when you there's still a coordinator node, but all it's used for is when you're doing uh, DDL. So that's you know create table, alter table, and that's just to keep uh, everything consistent when you're doing those very infrequent but very important updates to your schema. The rest of it, the inserts, updates, deletes, and queries, they go to a, a round robin uh, DNS to go randomly to one of the the worker nodes, and um, and so this is how all of the writes can be happening uh, in parallel, not bottlenecked on a single, on a single thing. And so this uh, is, a, I think, about four-minute example of using Citus Cloud to provision one of these Citus MX and going through uh, the uh, YCSB, I think, the Yahoo Cloud uh, benchmark to do, um, to do that. And I think if I do that. In this, In this demo, demo, we will we set, up set up a Citus MX formation using the Citus Cloud console. console. I will I use four nodes in high availability, availability mode, meaning each node has a hot standby, which automatically takes over in case of failure. failure. Once, Once my formation is ready, ready, I will see the dashboard where I can monitor and change my formation, and I will find URLs to connect directly to the Postgres nodes. I can get started with Citus by connecting to the coordinator. The coordinator, coordinator is a small, small additional Postgres node, node, which I only use for administrative demands. Citus is an extension to Postgres, which adds the ability to distribute tables across many servers. I can create a distributed table by first creating a Postgres table, and then specifying the distribution column and creating a number of shards. Each shard will contain a different set of devices. After creating a distributed table, I can start using the data URL, which connects me to a random data node. Every data node contains a different set of numbered shards, as well as the distributed table. Writes to the distributed table are rooted to a particular shard based on the device ID. If I then get connected to a different node, I will see the same distributed table with all preceding writes in a consistent manner. Now let's, now let's add, add some, some more data, data to our distributed table. table. This tool this starts a number of threads, threads which send individual inserts to the database via the data, data URL, getting a throughput of around 15,000 per second. If I, if I want higher throughput, I can easily scale out my cluster by adding more nodes in the Citus Cloud console. After a while, new nodes will come online without interruption, and I can see my throughput increase and my latency drop because my queries are now being rooted via eight nodes instead of four. However, my data is still on the original four nodes. To solve this, I can run the shard balancer, which automatically moves shards between the data nodes one by one. While the shard rebalancer is running, Queries on the distributed table can continue as normal, except writes on the shard that is currently being moved will experience higher latency. Once the shard rebalancer is done, the data is redistributed, and I can see my throughput increase to 30,000 per second, twice what we had originally. While my inserts are ongoing, I can still do fast selects, such as this query for a particular device which goes to a single shard. 
or disbelief across all devices, which Scientist paralyzes across the cluster. You might be wondering, how fast can Scientist really go? So I set up another formation with 32 bigger nodes, on which I will run the YCSB benchmark. YCSB is a benchmark for testing queries which reads and writes on a particular key. I use the YCSB Java tool, which connects to Postgres to the JDBC drive, and configured it to insert 10 million rows of 100 bytes each. To run the full benchmark, I set up 32 drive nodes, one for each database. To run the YCSB command on each of them, I use the TSSH tool, which runs SSH commands in parallel. After a while, I can see the results coming in, and each node performed around 16,000 inserts per second, which adds up to over 500,000 inserts per second. And these are consistent, durable writes using the Citus Cloud production settings. If you need even higher throughput, you can use the copy command to append a raw data file directly to the distributed table. We put a file with 10 million rows on each of the driver nodes and loaded it using copy. The whole, the whole process, process of loading, loading 320 million, million rows, rows took only 45, 45 seconds, seconds, which is 7 million rows per second. second. If, you're if you're interested in using Citus MX, MX, so yeah, so that's um, the copy is a little bit cheating because it is just bulk loading. It's not uh, doing it, but it is. Uh, so we, I don't like to advertise the number too much because it's just because it's you know it's only if you do have data to bulk load, but the. Uh, but the, the random inserts of the Yahoo benchmark is uh, very nice because it's uh, more more accurately simulates what a production uh, load might be. You know, of course, that's hard to do in, in a benchmark. It's hard to you know do uh, you know real production use into a synthetic benchmark. But as far as benchmark goes, I like the Yahoo one a lot because it is uh, more random writes in different locations. Uh, and the bulk loading that can go so fast because Postgres copy is very fast, and we can route that to the right node. And then uh, Postgres copy just uh, pretty much just splats the the tuples you know straight to disk, and so that that's limited mostly on your disk throughput. Um, and so you sort of have two choices with Citus. You can run it yourself; it's open source. You can go take it, uh, play with it today, and there's nothing wrong with running it yourself. Uh, but there is, you know, a little bit more effort into keeping a cluster of Postgres machines happy and healthy and running than it is to just uh, one uh, one Postgres and it's maybe a couple replicas. And so because of that, uh, I joined uh, you know, Citus a little while ago to help build their cloud service. And um, I, I, you know, there are some trade-offs to you know, not running yourself, uh, uh, and there is some benefits to not running yourself. One of the benefits is that um, as you know, sort of a centralized point, we get to see the failure modes of you know, many different customers and sort of take that expertise and you know put that across you know and help everyone out. Uh, and we see you know see more fa failures than uh, or weird edge cases you know dealing with Amazon than you would yourself running just an application for your one company. Um, the downside, though, of course, is it, it is a loss of control. If you're running it yourself, you have full control of everything, uh, but you know you do also have all of the blame. And so those are sort of the two trade-offs. Um, I do have to get a little bit into the origins. Uh, many of the original decisions that uh, went into this actually started uh, five, six years ago uh, with uh, my uh, former uh, team, Heroku Postgres. I see uh, some of my former colleagues here. Uh, thank you very much for, for coming. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, 
you know, we were able to leverage, uh, you know, many of the decisions and learnings about dealing with a cloud service on Amazon, having, you know, come through and done this, you know, sort of, uh, you know, this is maybe, I mean, it's not, not, not really, but it's maybe like the sixth year of uh, running uh, databases on Amazon. Uh, and I can't overstate, like, the confidence uh, and that that, that, that experience uh, gave us. Um, and so the way that we're doing this, just to, uh, you know, set the stage a little bit, uh, we're using a, a Ruby uh, thing called uh, Sinatra, which is a small API framework to do the orchestration. And uh, one of the things, I don't know, does anyone here use uh, the SQL uh, library in post uh, for, for Ruby? Yeah, like, if, if you are using Ruby, uh, you, SQL is one of the uh, best-run projects that I've ever come across. It's uh, uh, one guy, Jeremy Evans, mainly coordinating the, the project. And if you, if you go to you know, github.com slash... Uh, Jeremy Evans slash SQL, if you go there and look at the issues right now, there's probably zero issues. And that's not because people aren't reporting it. That's because he closes the issues almost immediately. Uh, it's like, and there's, uh, the other thing that I really love about SQL is there's one release every month, and it's just the accumulation of some small changes. It's not, you know, some other software projects where, you know, every once in a while there's a big release and you have to do a lot of work to get on top of it and, you know, fix things. This, you know, sort of incremental changes has been, uh, you know, it's a, a joy to use. Uh, so I try, to, I try to tell people about it as much as I can because uh, it's, a, it's a great, uh, you know, little-known project. Um, some people ask me, you know, Will, why, why are you doing, you know, something in Ruby? Isn't it uh, slow? Isn't it, uh, you know, this and that? But uh, the biggest reason, the, the hands down the biggest reason that uh, I used Ruby again for this project was the interactive console. Being able to, you know, in a fire, you know, firefighting situation, you know, maybe, you know, something is wrong with these 10 servers. Maybe, uh, you know, servers on this particular AMI have some sort of problem. Uh, you, know, the, you know, just any sort of situation. Being able to open an interactive console in production, grab the servers that I need to fix, fire off commands, uh, is just, um, you know, such a huge performance increase rather, you know, just on my time, rather than having to, um, you know, muck around with the CLI tool or, you know, have to make API calls or whatever. Having, it, having the, the tool that I operate the service with be the same, uh, the same concepts, the same programming models as the code itself is just removes a, a you know, an impedance mismatch that, uh, would would be there were there not a nice interactive console. Uh, the other big thing that uh, carried over an idea is having mostly immutable servers. Uh, always, we always prefer to throw away a server entirely rather than go in and uh, muck about with the configuration or whatever. Now this you know I say mostly you know sometimes if there's a very important uh, you know very important very time sensitive security improvement. You know, uh, you know, let's say SSL. I don't know if that ever has any security things, but sometimes it does. Uh, that is easy to go in right away and just patch that. But if it's something you know less time sensitive, it's uh, we always prefer to make a new AMI, uh, spin up uh, a replica of the server that we're going to take down, and then do a controlled switch. Uh, and that way, uh, we know, you know, there's not we, you know, servers don't get weird, you know, configurations because they got monkeyed with a little bit. Uh, you know, things are pretty, pretty standard, pretty, uh, you know, non-surprising. Uh, and the other nice thing about the servers being mostly immutable is that uh, if the main monitoring orchestration app goes down, 
the databases aren't dependent on that. They uh, live on. And the way we do this is by having uh, outside in SSH and psql checks. And so um, rather than have an agent on the box, you know, spitting out, uh, you know, metrics and something uh, that we'd have to go and update as we wanted to do new checks, all we have to do is update the central monitoring application, and it starts doing new checks, new health checks, new, um, you know, metrics gathering and so on. And this is how, you know, there's no, re the, the server itself doesn't need to know that it's being monitored. It doesn't need to be sending stuff. You know, uh, it, we just connect, do some checks. And the other nice thing is because we're doing these connections uh, frequently, uh, we can sort of know if there's a, maybe a network interruption rather than if, the, if there was a monitoring agent on the box sending metrics out, we might not be able to notice that um, you know, there's some sort of uh, networking problem. I, I do want to go on a little bit of a small, I don't want to use the word rant, but uh, something like that on microservices. Uh, you know, so eventually as, as things grow, like, you know, we need, you know, a, a, an approach to, uh, you know, breaking up the code and, and you know, growing the service. Uh, I'm sure, you know, many of you are familiar already with Conway's law, but just to uh, reiterate, uh, organize, organizations with design systems are constrained to produce designs which are copies of the communication structures of the organization. And when I first heard about this, um, you know, I don't know how long ago, I, I thought, you know, this is something to be avoided. Like, you know, the system should be designed as the system should be. And, you know, just because there's people involved like that, we shouldn't, you know, that's unfortunate that we have to, you know, that's something that we should fight against. But now I think that it's maybe just unavoidable and uh, just kind of embrace that, that it's going to happen and keep that in mind when developing your teams, when splitting out teams, rather than try and fight it from the, the engineering side. Uh, so the, you know, the upsides of microservices, of course, you know, the people go on and on, on and on about that for, you know, years now, two years maybe. The, uh, the downsides, though, is I, you can no longer look in a single place, single point of truth. Now you have to do API calls and, like, to figure out what's going on. And while each individual app might be simpler, uh, all that complexity is pushed into the communication channels between the apps, which is, you know, much orders of magnitude harder to debug and reason about. And so when uh, building this, I wanted to keep it as few services as possible, but it's still, um, we still needed sort of two different uh, services that, that made sense to do it that way. Um, one of them is uh, the external UI that we, you saw in the demo video, that, that uh, web page. Um, that thing takes care of you know, user-facing things and the other one is the inner turtle control plane, which is, handles uh, managing the fleet and so on. Um, to go into detail about the two things, the console, um, we also, oh yeah, we also do billing. Uh, we show uh, metrics. And the reason this makes sense as a separate thing is because this, you know, doesn't get interacted with that often. It's only ever responding to people going in and clicking around. There's not, you know, it's not an automated service that, you know, computers are talking to. It's just, you know, a human interaction thing. And for this one, we do use Rails, but we swapped out Active Record for SQL just because uh, I already went on my, uh, you know, uh, how much I love it, but uh, it was great. Um, and uh, the control plane, this is what does the server provisioning. It does the monitoring. It does healing of, uh, you know, disaster recovery. It's really the, uh, the you know, the, sort of the brains behind 
the cloud service, and uh, this one uses Sinatra and SQL, and that's going to be the, uh, the focus for the rest of the remainder of the talk. Uh, you know, the commonalities are, you know, Ruby and SQL, which I mentioned. Um, and uh, before we go further, I need to introduce some of the, the concepts that I'm going to be, you know, talking about how we model uh, running a service on Amazon. Uh, one is the formation and server. So a formation is the entire Citus cluster, you know, how, you know, it's all the, the primary machines that are doing the work, all of their replicas that are there for disaster recovery. Uh, a server is an AWS instance. And, um, you know, this, we started with just this. Uh, we've made it a little bit more complicated because, you know, servers get replaced over time, but they have the same, like, role. Like, uh, you know, worker one is always worker one, even if the Amazon server behind it changes due to failover. And um, uh, just uh, before I maybe say something, is anyone here from AWS? Okay, so... As you know, Amazon can be a hostile place to run apps, especially uh, databases. And so because of this, over time, we've, uh, you know, developed uh, different ways to, you know, handle failover, handle replication and durability. Uh, the main tool that we use to do that is a tool called Wally. -E. And uh, data protection, I see this as the, the most important thing. You know, higher than availability, if, uh, if a customer loses their data, you know, perhaps their entire business could be down. You know, if it's just downtime, you know, you want to avoid downtime as much as possible, but losing or corrupting data is often much, much worse. Um, and so what Wally does is it takes Postgres's archive command, and uh, every 16 megabytes or one minute, which is the default uh, Postgres configuration, you can tune that a little bit, uh, it takes that WAL file and sends it off to S3. And so if you, even if you're not using, uh, you know, my service here, if you are running... Uh, Postgres on AWS, please, 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 please use Wally. Uh, I can't, you know, count the number of times that, you know, having the wall off the machine is, has, has saved us. Um, and so the other thing it does is that once, once a day you can script it to take a base backup, which is the entire uh, archive of the database, and then do the wall for that. And the other thing that this allows you to do is uh, point-in-time recovery. And so a timeline of a database, each one of these uh, diamonds is the base backup. So that happens once a day. And then, then in between here, you have the incremental wall segments. Um, and so what you can do is you can set up, you know, easily with, if you have this set up, you can bring on read replicas by taking down the last base backup and having it replay the wall off of S3 until it gets uh, caught up and up to switch into streaming replication. And then you have, you know, very fast uh, replica ready to go for failover or uh, what have you. And these uh, replicas, of course, are, are read-only because that's how Postgres's uh, streaming replication works. And then w if we do have to do recovery for some reason, we promote one of those standbys to be the new uh, primary for its role. You know, if it's worker one, worker two, it becomes the new primary uh, it starts generating the wall segments, and then we throw away the old one. Um, yeah, and so that if that replica exists, we can do that very quickly. Uh, but even if it doesn't exist and the server's just down, uh, because everything is off the machine on S3, uh, it, the, we don't necessarily need the primary to be, still be running to create the, a replacement. Um, and there's, so there's lots of reasons to cycle machines. One is, you know, unavoidable unexpected downtime, 
The other one is if we want to experiment with new disk layouts, uh, you do scheduled maintenances from, you know, AWS saying the instance is about to retire. Uh, we can use this to uh, quickly switch over to a standby rather than go through the restart. Um, and because both disaster recovery and sort of scheduled known maintenances are using the same mechanism, uh, the disaster recovery gets battle tested uh, more frequently than uh, an unexpected outage. Uh, the other thing uh, that uh, model that has worked very well is sort of uh, doing video game developments. My, one of my, my first uh, managers spent some time in the video game field and applied that to Amazon. Uh, I put this slide once in uh, a talk I gave in Moscow, and I thought they would like it because it was Tetris and it was from Russia, but they didn't uh, laugh. <laughs> so. Um, and so there's uh, two phases uh, to this video game development. One is uh, a feel or an observation of what the world is. So this is the health checks that go in. Uh, we see, we look at the environment to see what is true. And then the second phase is a tick, and we operate on those observations we just saw. Uh, and what we do then is we um, perhaps change state or we stay in the same state. So this is a, a simplification of sort of how we, how we reason about Amazon instances. Uh, the first stage is creating, and that's when we are, uh, you know, provisioning the machine, we're waiting for it to come up, we're waiting for the network interfaces to attach, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, and then it goes into the available state. And once it's here, this is the, you know, it'll stay here for a majority of the time. Uh, and then if we notice that something went wrong, maybe we weren't able to connect to Postgres, we weren't able to SSH in, uh, we'll go to an uncertain state. Uh, rather than just immediately call the machine offline and go through failover, you know, perhaps it's just, um, you know, some sort of, you know, short network blip. And so we wait in the uncertain state for a minute or two just to be sure that we're not going to, uh, you know, go through uh, disaster recovery when it's not necessary. Uh, and if it, you know, everything goes back, then we'll pop it back into available. Otherwise, we'll go into the unavailable state and start doing disaster recovery. We'll, we'll try to restart the machine. We'll uh, at the same time bring, bring up read replicas and, all, and so, so on and so forth. Um, and the key here is that we're always trying to converge to that available state. No matter what, what happens, uh, we want to get back to that state. And uh, one of the, the things that, um, you know, is nice, there was a, earlier this year, I forget exactly when, uh, there was some sort of uh, elastic IP outage in US East, or I forget the, the details, but what, what you needed to do was deassociate de the EIP and reattach it. And rather than have to write a new script and go through and do that for our instances, uh, we were able to just deassociate all of the IPs and trust that the state machine would do the right thing and converge and do the reattachment. And that's a you know very nice way to um, a very nice thing to rely on. And it's, uh, the other thing is the other, one of the last parts is uh, these job queues, job queues, and. Um, that's doing what's doing all of the work to do the health checks and so on. And uh, spent some time looking at a, a couple different side, uh, couple different queuing services and so on. Uh, but uh, Sidekick is a Ruby one that, uh, in a couple other languages, and it uses Redis for the store, and it's very, uh, you know, very fast, very performant. And um, the first sort of iteration on this, we relied on jobs re-enqueuing themselves, so they would. Uh, they would, a server would do the server work to check 
and then re-enqueue itself back into the queue. Uh, and that worked pretty well, but then sometimes when there'd be a big exception, a big, um, you know, big problem, they would fall out and it wouldn't re-enqueue itself. And uh, so, and then spend some time trying to go through the queue and see what was missing and re-add those, but that, you know, got, you know, eventually gets slow as the number of servers you monitor increase. Um, and so the approach we use now is uh, every uh, five, 10 seconds, we look at the size of the queue. And if it's starting to get small, then we re-enqueue the work for uh, looking at all the servers again and again. Uh, and so that way, the queue never runs empty, but it's never, uh, you know, it doesn't overflow. It's not super, it's not super full. Um, the other thing that's uh, interesting is, so we have, you know, all these servers doing all these checks, potentially making uh, very important decisions to, uh, you know, kill a server because we want to, you know, make sure it's down before we bring up the replica. And so we want to make sure that uh, we're never, there's no races, that, you know, we're not, um, you know, don't run into any concurrency problems. And the approach that uh, my colleague uh, Dan Frino settled on was this uh, semaphore approach. And so, for example, this example, we're adding a node to a formation uh, to increase the you know, total number of the total compute size of the of the Citus cluster, and so we when we're going to add it, so we need to add a server for its placement, and then for each of the servers, the, uh, the existing servers, we need to go in and reconfigure them so they know the existence of this new node in the cluster, but we don't want to. Uh, you know, accidentally, if, you know, if you press the button to add the node twice, uh, we want to make sure that we reconfigure correctly twice, you know, two times. And if we didn't have this sort of semaphore thing in, it would be easy to uh, do it once and say, say we're done and then miss out on the second one. And then on the other hand, uh, we look to see if the semaphore is positive. We, if it is, that means we do have some work to do and we uh, swap the state into configuring. And then in the, the thing on the right here, when we're doing the configuration, we decrement it once, do the work, and that way when someone pressed the add server button twice, we know we're still need, gonna need to do this work the second time for the second server. Um, that is a, a very a brief thing. If, if that sort of uh, you know, thing excites you about uh, using this to orchestrate uh, your servers on Amazon, uh, this blog post goes into uh, very, very uh, in-depth detail um, it's a very long blog post. It took me a long time to read. Uh, my colleague wrote it. Um, and so the, the last sort of thing is how we do metrics collection. And also this gives an example of how to use Citus if you're going to use it yourself. And so customer visible metrics, if you go into the, in the dashboard, you can see uh, you know, some metrics that we're using to, uh, to see the health of your own, your own service. And the way that this one is stored, uh, you saw the CW metrics table a little bit earlier, and this is uh, a sample row from what it looks like. Uh, the CW is for CloudWatch. We're just taking CloudWatch metrics and storing them in our own database so we can do our own manipulations, our own um, uh, uh, investigations on the CloudWatch data. And so we have a server ID, and this is just a UUID to randomly distribute out across, um, you know, have the data be distributed across the Citus cluster. We have the AWS ID, this is the you know, instance ID you know and love. 
Uh, and then we have the, the metrics name, the timestamp of when that metric was taken, and then the CloudWatch um, information. And the index we have on here is a compound index of server ID, the timestamp, the AWS ID, and the name. And the reason it's, uh, the primary key is so wide, rather than just being one column, is this ensures that uh, the, the tool I wrote to go and you know, take CloudWatch data and dump it into our Citus cluster, if it ever gets like, um, you know, out of sync and starts grabbing the same data twice, uh, because the primary key includes the metrics name and the AWS ID and the timestamp and everything, uh, it prevents, uh, you'll get a, you know, a, for, a primary key uh, violation and it won't, you know, insert, insert duplicate data. And also, uh, when we do queries on it, uh, usually we do all the way up to the Amazon ID, and then we can, you know, that query, that index uh, is pushed down to each one of the nodes, and so the index can be, we can take advantage of it uh, in parallel. Um, the other exciting metrics thing is uh, admin metrics only. So this is when I log into the administration plane, this is what I see. And uh, originally, I was using an application-level exception tracker to store both exceptions that were unexpected, but also these sort of expected uh, exceptions, one of them like being a timeout error. So this is as we're connecting to a server, but it's not yet quite up, uh, SSHL timeout. Or uh, you know, if we're connected currently to Postgres and then it, it dies in the middle, uh, that might be the database connection error. Uh, you know, connection refused, you know, so on. There's a handful of these exceptions because we're doing these constant health checks that we sort of expect to see. And I was putting them in the exception tracker with the exceptions that I actually want to know about and do a code fix because they're actual bugs. And having those two sorts of things in the same place was not, uh, not ideal. And being able to graph them like this, though, we can see, you know, here uh, on that Friday, you see that the, on the first metric there, something, something went wrong there. Nothing is catastrophically wrong, otherwise we'd be getting paged, but there's obvious that some sort of change went in Friday, probably right before someone went home for the weekend, and uh, you know, something, is, something is going wrong, but you know, don't quite know what. Uh, and so by storing these sorts of exceptions in, in, in our own internal Citus cluster, we can um, you know, sort of when we notice that the pattern has changed, we can go and investigate and see what's wrong. And th all this table is is a random ID, uh, UUID, the name of the exception, the time, and then a JSONB column. And so we can store any sort of data we want in there. Uh, and so this is helpful. Like we can store part of the backtrace. We can store uh, maybe what server was being looked at at the time. And um, those graphs that we did there, this is you know, a very simple uh, query to do uh, select count star, the name, truncate it down to the hour, and then just look at the last week. And because we have an index on, uh, on the created app there, we have an index on that, uh, being able to just slice out the last week of data from our you know, ever-growing uh, data set, uh, that index can be used just like any other Postgres index, and it's a you know, very fast query. Um, so I do want to end with one a uh, little story of a misadventure that we ran into. Uh, when, I, when we started, uh, we looked at uh, ZFS on Linux, uh, even though you know, it's better on BSD, but like the ZFS on Linux, it's been around for a little while, like, let's, let's give this a shot. And the initial uh, results that we saw were very, very impressive. We were seeing 
uh, 4 to 5x compression on the data drives and sometimes up to 70x compression on the write-ahead wall, the wall drive. And um, the, com the storage compression isn't what we're going for, but because it's on EBS, having that compressed over the network from the wherever EBS is to the instance, uh, the, the uh, performance increases that we're seeing were, were very, very incredible. Unfortunately, uh, I can't, this is the misadventure slide, uh, it didn't go well. There was, uh, sometimes we started seeing uh, in the kernel uh, ZFS trying to allocate memory and it would lock the entire machine up for sometimes minutes and uh, that was not um, acceptable. And so uh, we went back and uh, rolled that out. Uh, I'm keeping a little bit of an eye on those bug reports to see if maybe they get fixed. We can go back to using ZFS because it was, um, aside from you know locking the machine up for minutes, uh, it was good. But that's a, it's a bit of a downside. Um, thank you very much. Um, happy to answer some questions. I also have um, a couple other people from the, the company. I don't, is Craig here? Uh, so, uh, but uh, so happy to answer questions. And then we also have a booth at uh, 2020. Uh, if you want to come down anytime uh, to, we have some socks. We also have some socks here if you're interested. But uh, thank you very much.